the calls where I end up leaning in for the founder is when it's so clear that they love what they're doing. They have fantastic answers. Their background is a great fit for what they're doing. And there's somebody that I would be excited to work with. Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Gail Wilkinson, our managing partner here at Vitalize. And today's episode is a little different. We're doing a deep dive on how Gail runs her founder calls. So these first calls she has with founders, what she's looking for, what founders can expect, questions they should ask the investor, and much, much more. Let's get to it. Gail, we're back. Welcome. <laughs> Hello, Justin. I am excited to talk about founder calls, how this goes. I know founders, uh, every time they kind of pitch and everything, there's always difference in terms of how VCs approach it. Everyone has their own style, their own methods, top level goal. When you're having a founder call, Gail, what are you trying to get out of it? Let's start with that. Yeah. So founder call typically is the first time I'm actually speaking with the founder. Um, It could be an in-person meeting if they happen to be in the same city where I'm at. Um, but it's really an opportunity for me to get to know them, their story, why they started the business, what the business is, and where they're at from a traction perspective. So there's a little script that I'll go through. And at the end of that 30-minute meeting, my hope is that I have an answer on, is this a potential fit? Yes or no? Um, if no, let the founder know. If yes, what are the next steps? From this call too, I'm curious. Do you? So you've already looked at maybe their pitch deck. You've already seen a little bit of information on there. Do you go through, have them go through the pitch deck in the call? Do you just want to hear their story? Just take me through like how you actually run these. If founders, it'd be helpful for them to hear like, what is a call with Gail actually like if they're pitching us at Vitalize? Well, one of my, my secrets is that I actually let the founder drive that. So at the beginning, I, I typically like to, to say, hi, so nice to meet you. And, um, you know, I'd love to hear your story and your words as well as why you started the business and, and what the business is. And I'm happy to share information about uh, us at Vitalize upfront or at the end, whatever makes more sense for you. So some of the founders want to hear about us and then, you know, they'll, they'll share their background and I just ask questions. I think that typically is the best way to run an investor call because, um, you know, like when I, when I'm pitching to an LP, I would, I want to know what that LP is looking for because that helps me when I answer their questions to ensure I'm addressing the things that are most important to that limited partner. Same thing with founders. If they hear what Vitalize or a fund is looking for upfront, they can tailor answers in the best way possible. Um, and then, you know, obviously at the end, we'll talk about process and next steps. So um, some founders want to walk through their deck. That's fine. I, I do like to see a product demo live, but I don't really need to see the deck because I typically have it up on my end and I'm kind of going, I'm going to that, I'm going to LinkedIn, some other sources, and obviously listening to the founder and asking questions during those calls. You said you have your own process, your own kind of script as well. Tell me what are some of the things that entails as you're having these conversations with founders in like the first call? Yeah, the um, it really does depend in terms of what the <laughs> business is. And of so course. If, so if you take a step back, I have to assess the following. One, is it a fit for Vitalize's criteria? So I'll ask questions up front about that. For example, like let's say a founder is calling in from London. I will ask them, is your company incorporated in the US? If it's not, I tell them right away, you know, because we're a small fund, we actually don't have the bandwidth to administer outside of a Delaware C Corp. And, you know, I ask them, like, do you do you want to still have the call? Like what what is the right next step? Because 
I'm sorry, but it's just not going to be a fit. Um, so that that's number one. Once we figure out that, you know, I've asked enough questions to know this is a potential strike zone fit for Vitalize. It's understanding, you know, how big is the opportunity? What do you think about the competition, your financial projections? You know, how are you defining your target market? Um, what have you built so far? What's the product roadmap? Who have you hired? What's your plan moving forward? How do you think about data science strategy? So there's a bunch of questions that I will ask all, and I'm, I'm, yes, I'm listening for the exact answer for that question, but I'm also listening to how the founder thinks and what inputs they've gathered from research that they've done and from testing that they've done from customer conversations that they've had, that they are now incorporating into what's been built and how they're going to incorporate it moving forward. That's the most important thing at the stage where we invest. You already have context heading into the meetings. As I mentioned, you have a little bit of information about that. You're diving a little bit deeper in this first call. They already did enough to get you on a first call, which is like a level of filtering. So they know they made it to that. What helps founders stand out? I want to go on the opposite side in a second. I'm like, what makes them the negative side, but sticking with the positive, what is something like, how do founders stand out on this first call with you? I'm curious about that. Yeah. The, the founders, when we sell our goal is to make people lean in. You want the person that you're selling to, to lean in and be genuinely interested in what you're selling. And so the, the calls where I end up leaning in for the founder is when it's so clear that they love what they're doing. They have fantastic answers. They have, they've, they've done a lot. Their background is a great fit for what they're doing. Um, and you can tell by how they answer things, like they're, they're very smart and savvy and they, um, they're somebody that I would be excited to work with. You know, they, they execute quickly. They have a big vision. One question I always ask founders is, you know, Justin, tell me about what this business looks like in five to 10 years. And when the founder, without needing any input or help from someone like me, they've, they've got their own big vision. And I really love, you know, and I can see that I can feel that it's something that would be awesome in our portfolio. Like that's where I really start to lean in. And is that when you're doing these, uh, these calls with founders, is it that you're slowly during it, you start to warm up to it more and more. Do you know kind of right away in the first minute or two as they start to go through things? Are you taking notes and like amazing founder, or like this question, the answer amazing. Like, what are you thinking of as they're going through this pitch too? Well, I mean, I share my, what, what I do is I have our CRM open. So affinity is open yeah. and I take notes during the call. So yeah. um, I type pretty much answers to all the questions that I ask. I do make notes like that, you know, founder, you know, founders seems to have good insight around the data or, you know, I get, they'll make notes on the other end of the spectrum about the founder. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm asking a bunch of questions and taking those notes. Sometimes I know right away that I'm likely to be interested in it. Hmm. Um, it does take the whole call for me to make that determination. Um, and sometimes I do warm up at the end because, the, the thing about early stage venture, really all venture, but especially early stage where there's not a lot of data, um, you're, you're, you're trying to understand tons of attributes about a deal. And then you have to take a step back and you have to look at the picture holistically with all the attributes now that you know at least most of them and decide, yeah. is this something that is a fit or not? Um, so I, you know, if, if there's something that's not cut and dry in terms of 
criteria fit like the Delaware secret thing is kind of cut and dry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will oftentimes wait until the end because I do want to get a full, a full understanding of the business before making that determination. And you said the Delaware C Corp thing. So there's obviously things that are like, okay, this checks the box as a negative or like we can't work with you because of these reasons. There's other things that are opposite and positive. If these go right, this is helpful. What's the balance with that? I mean, just talk me through how you're thinking about that. Are you looking at like, okay, red flag, red flag, red flag, oh, sorry, pass. Is it more like I need these things to like make it a yes? Because there's so it's so hard to even like think about that when, with these deals. I'm just curious on getting into the mindset of Gail and how you how you think about it as you're in this call with a founder. So my, my mindset is this, my job, my number one job in venture is to do good deals and, and taking that a step further, it has to match my thesis. It has to be good for my portfolio construction. There's a lot of nuance behind that. How much money do I have to deploy? How fast is stuff moving? But, um, at the end of the day, I have to do good deals. And so my job on that first phone call is I have 30 minutes to assess, is this a potential fit? Yes or no. And, you know, I would say every month our team is taking, let's say 50 to 60 calls. And there are probably 10 to 15 times another person on our team will do a second call. And of the 50 to 60, there might be five that we do some form of diligence on. So just thinking about that, the percentages are low because yeah. you're already... 50 or 60 out of 500 that we saw. So you're in the top 10%. And then, you know, the top maybe 15 to 20% goes to the next stage. And then yep. it's even, you're, you're getting down to the best, you know, 0.5 to 1% of companies actually make it into diligence. So um, just remembering that you're, you're looking for that match. It's a mutual fit on both the founder side and the investor side. And um, as I go through these calls, I, I know that my time is so valuable and the investor or the founder's time is so valuable that the, the more that I can make that determination on the phone, the better. I only want to put founders to a second call or into diligence. I truly believe that right now making an investment is a good fit for our firm. And I'm very open and honest with founders about that. And if, if it's not, if it's not a yes now, I tell them why. And, um, founders have stayed in touch and I have eventually invested in some of them. So, um, getting to that end of the call, what the founder should be looking for is, you know, is it a potential fit? If yes, what are next steps? If no, why? And, you know, if maybe, what do I need to know to maybe make this something happen with this investment future? Is there a difference for you? Just tell me like the mindset of, on the VC side of it, obviously investing at seed stage, but then you're also an angel investor as well. I've done a bunch of deals there. Tell me about the difference in terms of you're having a call with the founder, considering that maybe for an angel deal potentially versus VC fund for founders who are curious, who are going to potentially pitch an angel versus a VC. I'm just curious for you. I'm way more regimented when I'm investing other people's money as, yeah. as a fund manager. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I've, I've got 25 to 30 at bats in this fund and I am looking for five breakouts and I'm looking for another five pretty good ones. And that together is going to five X plus my fund. Like that's how my, my, my math works when I think about the model. Um, and so if I don't think that you're potentially going to be in that group of five, every single company that comes through our doors has to be a potential for those five. Um, so 
that is, you know, that's why it's extremely difficult to get VC funding. Angel money is a little bit easier to access because, and I'm speaking personally for myself, but this does probably translate to others. Yeah, We can invest in what we love. So Justin comes to me with this really cool business, you know, that I personally just love. And maybe I'll have one call with them and be like, yeah, I'm in for 5,000 or 10,000 or whatever it is. Um, because it's one, a smaller amount of money two it's my money. And I know that I can do whatever I want with that. And I don't have the repercussions as a fiduciary, I'm a fiduciary to my, um, to my LP base. So, um, I do think about it extremely differently. Now I do ask the same questions, you know, competition yeah. and market size and future vision, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I can, I can make that final call a little bit looser as an angel. All right, I want to get into some red flags. We know there's the clear cutoffs of like Delaware C Corp, all that. But, and I also remember, I think I heard you on a call uh, when I was there at one point and uh, the, the founder kept like cutting you off on things you were saying. Take me through some of the red flags of behavior, of things they say, of anything about the company you find out in the call that you're like, yeah, that's not good. That's a, it's a warning sign for us investing. All right, I'll start with behavioral stuff. Yeah. Um, and remember, like, investing is a relationship. So Justin and I are teammates. We have to like each other because we work so closely together. Same thing on the founder investor side. I have to like the portfolio of company founders. They should like me. We trust each other. We want to have a long-term relationship. Um, and so there are some things that sometimes happen in these calls where I see patterns. Um, one is that founders will keep talking. And that's really not a good thing because when the founder keeps talking and can't stop after answering a question, you know, it's not really back and forth. And I don't want that kind of a relationship with a founder. Um, I want a founder that is looking for their, their sharing inputs with us. We're sharing thoughts with them. And it's this back and forth where, you know, we're both helping each other. We're both working together. And when somebody is unable to kind of stop, it's a red flag. Um, you mentioned the interrupting. I've had a number of founders do that where I'm trying to answer their question or to share a thought or to ask, you know, to, to, to get a voice in and they keep interrupting me. And, you know, that's obviously not going to work. Um, I, I can't do this as much on Zoom, but I used to love to meet teams together. So like, let's mm. say you're co-founders, right? I want to meet, I want to meet you guys together in person if possible. And, um, I'm, I'm watching how they're interacting with each other. There was one time I passed on a deal um, where I, I actually, the, there were four team members together, so two founders and two other executives. And the way that one of the founders treated one of the other folks sitting in that room, I was just like, no, that, that's, there's a red flag there. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I'm, I'm watching all that kind of stuff. I'm listening and I'm, I'm watching more than just what the answers to the questions are. Um, so those are behavioral. I can walk through other kind of, more like process stuff. I want to go through process stuff for sure. But on the behavior stuff, to that point, now we're in this virtual world, remote work, all this stuff. It's not in-person pitches really as much, if not much at all. Like, have you had to adjust and adapt that? Like, how have you then on that point? Because like, it's hard to read that. I know people would talk about even uh, taking people to restaurants and having like the restaurant owner mess up the order on purpose to see how they respond. Like you hear stories about that. Like I, you don't have that on Zoom. Like, what are you going to do? So there's nothing, not the same. So I'm curious on any changes from that and how you've approached it when you knew you had to go to this Zoom world. I think the thing that inv most investors are doing now, if um, the meetings are only remote is doing a lot more background checking. 
So calling references both on list, so those are the ones that the founder gives the investor, but also going to LinkedIn and saying, okay, who do I know that knows that founder? And we reach out and we ask questions. Um, we also try and reach out um, to all of the other investors who have touched the business. And this is where I think founders um, should really take note. You know, if another investor calls me and they ask me about a business, I'm going to give them an honest answer. And I have had other investors tell me too to not invest in companies, which I very much appreciate. Um, yeah. I wish more investors were open and honest like that. But you know, you should expect that that investor is going to call whoever they can find that it has interacted with you. <laughs> okay, diving into the process side, process red flags as you're in these calls with founders. What are some things you have? There are a few reasons why I pass more often than anything else. Um, one is the valuation is too high or the founder is not raising enough money. If we unpack that a little bit, I, as an investor am providing capital to the, the company and I expect a certain percentage of ownership or equity for that capital invested. I'm usually investing alongside others. So that round of capital should typically at the early stage be somewhere between 15 and 25% of the founder's company from a post money perspective. And, you know, I'm, I'm still even in today's market seeing some come in where the founders are trying to sell 10% unless they've had a huge exit before. So there's something very special about the business. They, they're on a really great trajectory. Um, I'm going to question that for two reasons. I'm going to say one is probably priced too high. And so that's going to potentially impact your ability to get the right um, appreciation in your next round. So that's hurting me right off the bat. And two, are you raising enough money to hit your milestones? Because if you get caught in no person's land where you didn't hit the milestones you set out to hit, there's not a lot more bridge capital coming in. You know, investors yeah. are finally becoming wise to we need to invest in founders are actually on a growth trajectory. So terms, number one, and founders are sometimes like, you know, I'm going to try to raise on this. And here's another secret that I don't typically share. Uh, founders that come back to me and they're like, Hey, I've talked to a bunch of people and I've now reset my evaluation expectations back to what you, you said, and I'm just going to pass on it. I'm going to pass on it because I've got other stuff that's on my plate now. And I'm not going to go back to this deal because, you know, the setting the terms on a deal is it's a negotiation and it's a business decision. And, um, there's a lot of different ways that founders can approach that. And when they, you know, end up having to test something out and then decide that actually this isn't going to work, well, the coachability is not really there. Um, yeah. And so just keep that in mind as a founder. I see this a lot. Um, the, the second issue most commonly caused for a pass on call is cap table issues. So um, when I interview founders about their business, at the pre-seed, you know, maybe they've taken a little bit of angel money. So the founder or founders should own almost 100% of the company. At yeah. the seed stage, you know, I'm hoping that they've only sold 20, maybe 25% of the business so far because um, I want the founders to hold enough ownership to be incentivized. What I sometimes see is this. Some investor came in really early and, and at a valuation that um, made the founders sell a lot of the business up front. When the founder doesn't have enough of the business at seed stage, I just typically pass because um, it's likely that down the road, they're going to get diluted so much that we're going to have to recap the business. And 
I'm putting my capital in today, knowing full well that I'm probably going to end up getting recapped. The yeah. same thing happens when a company has to pivot really early. So you've got early investors, maybe raised like a, a pre-seed um, of 2 million bucks and you decided after a year, actually, we need to change this. And so you're going to raise your, your seed now of 3 million, but it's really still pre-seed because you completely changed the business. And, and all of that investor capital is just dead equity. Like it's mm. not providing value anymore. So that cap table is messed up. The final one on that is sometimes a, a co-founder leaves and they take with them more than five or 6%, which is kind of my cutoff for what is okay at this stage. Um, I do feel, I feel for founders when, you know, they've worked with a studio or an investor where they had a co-founder issue and now they're sitting on cap table problems. And my advice to them is try and fix this now before you take seed money, because it's only going to get worse down the road. And, you know, savvy seed investors are going to know that. So you're, you're limited in terms of the kind of capital that you can raise. Um, and then a couple other things that I'll just mention, like yeah. the mention of lawsuit, former, current, future, I'm out. I mean, that's, I just, I, I just can't do it. I also yeah. ask sometimes, you know, if I, if I remember to do this, if I'm not on the first call, we, we do this on the second call. Are there any things that would come up in a reference check that would be a problem? And, you know, I've found some things, for example, one time I looked at a real estate business and I had to pass because the founder had been a licensed real estate broker and lost their license or their behavior. And it's like, I, as a good fiduciary, I cannot move forward. So those are the types of things where I would say, unfortunately, that's just not fit. One follow up to what you said, um, cause I know founders are probably gonna be curious about this. You mentioned like the 15 and 25% ownership, uh, in terms of what they're giving away of their company what skews it either way on the 15 versus 25, like factors maybe in that it, founders would be curious, like, especially if they're maybe a first time founder, they're not sure what would skew that potentially. Maybe that's part of it being first time founder. What would change that in terms of how much they give up for their company? It's a good question. And the one way to answer it is just go with 20%. Most of the sure. time that is what, what works well. Um, yeah. th those who can sell less, so they're getting better terms as a founder. Um, it's it's former exits. It is existing traction. So you've got early revenues, and you're you're showing that there's real momentum. There's real there, there's very very clear signs of product market fit. Because a lot of times you don't really get to product market fit till after your Series A. And so at the very early stage, if you're already getting some of that momentum, maybe you maybe you are warranted in getting better economics. Um, if this is not necessarily true typically of the software world, but there are other spaces where you might have IP. Um, you could have partnerships already inked and signed as contracts where you know that that's worth a lot of money. Um, you could have, you could have purchase orders from customers. You could have, you could have something, even if not revenue that shows that this is going to be a fast moving opportunity. Those are all the things that help the founder get better economics. The founder may get, um, have to sell more of the company if it's a space where VCs typically don't like to invest um, or if there is what investors call quote hair on the deal, which is not you know, the greatest term, but it effectively means you know, things <laughs> that are potential red flags. Um, yeah. And that investor is taking more risk. W one example is, you know, you, you, you had a co-founder, they left, they've got 10% of the business and you know, the, 
the investor knows a recap will, will probably come. So they're going to ask for a little bit more today. That's a great example of when you might have to sell more. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to wrap up this question. What should founders do to prepare for these calls? Because they're going into this, especially if they're a first time founder, they may have no idea how these go. Obviously you mentioned a bunch of things you're looking for and all this other stuff, but just curious, anything you suggest for founders preparing for calls of VCs as they're going through this process, anything that might be helpful for them too. When I meet with a limited partner, and for those that don't know that that's that's the person that invests in GPs or the institution that invests in, in GPs. And I'm, I'm a GP, a general partner, a VC of a fund. Um, so I, I go out and do the same thing the founders do, which is try and raise money. Um, when I'm in those situations, I will Google the name of both the firm and the person that I'm meeting with. I want to see how, what is showing up with those search results? Um, what do, what about this person and this firm should I know? So I typically want to understand just the basics about the firm and then what, what is unique about this person? I'll go to their LinkedIn. Where did they go to school? Where do they live? Where else have they worked? Um, are they somebody that is active on social media? If so what do they talk about? And, and it doesn't really take that much time. It's a few minutes, but it's helpful for me because I go onto the call and you know I can be a little informed as to what that firm does. Um, not a lot of founders do this, to be honest, and I understand everyone's busy, um, but it is a way to stand out. And, the, you know, the the more research that you do, you're only putting yourself into a better a better position. Yeah, it does give you more, more context on everything that's, that's happening with them. And obviously, you got to this point, you're at least potentially a fit to get to a first call from a pitch deck, et cetera. Um, I think of my own research for podcast guests. There's so much that goes into that. Um, knowing oh, yeah. who they are and everything. There's a lot that is helpful. And it's always looking for a way to have a connection because at the end of the day, it is a relationship business, as you mentioned. So like, how do you connect with the person you're, you're across the table from, especially if they even want them to invest a million dollars, half a million dollars in your company. You might want to know the person a little bit before you talk to them as well. <laughs> and this is a really important point that you bring up. I mean, at the end of the day, you want to come to these calls and be yourself. And you know, you want you want to have fun, you want to enjoy the conversation, you want to be authentic. There are times where I sense a founder is answering things in the way that they think I want to hear it, and I will definitely uh, ask. Yeah. You know, that's that's not why I do this. In fact, I'm gonna tell you one of my first mistakes as a VC, um, and probably one that I you know sits with me the most, and I think a lot of VCs have this um, experience, is that we as VCs tend to be entrepreneurial. We're, we're often founders ourselves and uh, we can get excited about a space or a problem. And I can start to think about as a founder, how I would attack that. And so we cannot invest in what we would do if we were on the operating side. We have to invest in what that founder is saying. What is the founder's yeah. vision? What is the founder going to do from an execution standpoint? And I have to really remove my bias around what I would do and try to understand what the founder would do and make my decision based based on that. So it's really important just to be open and honest and, you know, come and be confident. And, you know, if it's not a fit, that's okay. There are lots of times there's not gonna be a fit, but the next one will be. Do you ever have to call them out like in a, in a pitch? Like, cause I'm just picturing like, Especially if people have only seen like on TV or something like, I'm going to be overconfident because this VC needs to know that I'm overconfident. Or we see in TV shows where they're like, yeah, they're trying to prep, help, hype themselves up. Like, do you ever have to like say something or like, do you, you just sense it? You're like taking it in and you're like, this is not who you are. Like, I'm just curious on how that even goes for you. <laughs> I, 
I used to like to try to give a lot of feedback on calls, which I okay. have shied away from because I learned very quickly that um, most people don't want to hear it. We don't like to hear that we're wrong. We don't like to hear that we're bad at something. We don't like to fail. We don't like criticism. And so we'll do anything um, within, you know, our, our primal brains to run <laughs> from that type of situation because it makes us very scared. Sure. So um, if I believe a founder would really be able to take that feedback and, and I get that based on how they're, they're answering, I can tell that they have a growth mindset from their answers. I can tell that this is something that would be really helpful for them. Then I will give them feedback about, hey, here's, here's something that you might think about um, moving forward. Like, this is really random. Um, Here we are. <laughs> um, you know, when, when I meet people in person, I still, you know, maybe 10% of people have really bad handshakes. And uh-huh. sometimes if I, once again, if I think that this person's open to it, I'll kind of pull them to the side and say like, Hey, just so you know, like, here's, here's a way that's kind of customary for handshakes in our country and show them be like, this coming across as a really soft handshake and that may be perceived as you are a meek person. And it happens with, it's most often women. Mm. Um, so there are, there are things like that, that, you know, I, I do like to give feedback and I want to be helpful. So yes, you're right. If those things come up where I'm like, Hey, you know, you, you might not want to do this or you might want to try that. Um, there are cases where I'll do it, but I also recognize that, um, you know, for my, for my own personal brands, it's sometimes just not, it's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> for your own sanity. Sometimes it's probably yeah. not worth it. I don't want to upset a founder. I don't want to have to deal with defensive emails, trying to like justify something after the call. You know, it's just, it's tough. It is tough, especially just the industry in general. Like you have a lot of type A personalities, a lot of people who are pretty ambitious and driven. Obviously they're trying to go venture back to route of a startup and trying to wrangle those personalities and everything on a call, maybe not worth it to sometimes give the feedback depending on what they're like. Um, but you've been doing it for like 10 years. So you run across every personality. <laughs> yeah. But there are, there are founders who are awesome. I, I had one maybe two weeks ago where I like, I liked the business, but they had cap table issues mm. and a lawsuit. And I was like, guys, I'm really sorry. I can't invest. And then we spent the rest of the time and they, they were genuinely asking, like, what, what, what can we do to solve this? And I, mm-hmm. I spent the time and I shared with them what I would do and what some options are. So the, the founders that, and this is maybe something that when you get to the end of the call as a founder, you know, asking those questions, hey, what are next steps based on what you know after this call? Do you think this is a potential fit? Go ahead and ask that. I like to ask that at the end of LP calls because mm-hmm. I want to know yeah. where we stand. If you ask the question directly, I hope you get a direct response. And then in your CRM, your list of VCs, you can make notes in terms of like, yes, this is something that is going to go to diligence. Um, it's a maybe because of this or it's a no. That's how you want to track everything. And you want to spend your time on the yeses. You don't want to spend any time on the no's um, except for maybe updating them for the next round. And then the maybes, you know, if you, it, it really depends. Like you, you have to in a triage where you're going to spend your time. So the questions that you ask at the end of every call are really important. Okay. Wait, is there anything else for the founder side of it then that they should ask VCs that they're on a call, they have this half hour with Gail. They're like, what should they be asking you? If I'm a founder, I'm asking the VC, what's your typical check size? Do you follow on? If so, how does that work? You know, Vitalize, I like to tell the, the founders, yes, we have money for follow on. 
we will not invest in all of our founders again. We will invest in those that have revenue that's growing and a lead investor comes in and prices the next round. There are cases outside of that. Like let's say it's an inside round and they're growing like gangbusters will still probably, you know, do that deal. Um, but I, I want to set expectations and it is within your right as a founder considering working with a VC to make sure you understand that. Um, you can ask where they're at in their fund. Is, are, are we in the first half of the fund? Are we one of the last deals? Because if you're one of the last deals, it's likely there is not follow-on funding. And you want to understand, um, you know, if you have a bunch of VCs investing at the end of the fund, you don't have pockets for them to reach into if you if that's part of how you're going to get capital for your next round. Um, yeah. You would ask, who is going to be my contact at, at the the fun moving forward with diligence. If you do make the investment, how does that work? What kind of support do you add to, um, to your portfolio companies? You know, specifically, do you make connections to companies? Do you provide operational guidance? And the, the list goes on. Um, it would be like, what are the next steps in the process? When can I expect like a decision? Um, how long does it take you to close once a decision is made? All that kind of stuff. That's very helpful because I, I know founders are going to listen to this and be like, oh my goodness, I know so much more about this opaque normally process of how at least you do it, which is hopefully is going to be helpful for them as they're going through this. First time founders or not, uh, it's hard to fundraise. So I appreciate you sharing this. Gail, thank you for the time today. Thanks, Justin. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc. Or you can follow me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.